This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Clouds so swift, rain won't lift, gate won't close, the railings froze. Get your mind off wintertime. You ain't going nowhere. Ooh-wee, ride me high. Tomorrow's the day my bride's going to come. Oh, oh, are we going to fly down in the easy chair? This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, One Song at a Time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host, of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly, and this is a very special episode, ladies and gentlemen. Joining me to discuss his part in the session for 1971's Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits Volume 2 is legendary musician Happy Trom. Hi, Happy. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. I am absolutely thrilled to be talking to you. Um, I have to set the scene a little bit for people that aren't aware of this. I've talked about it on the show before. This version from Greatest Hits Volume 2 of You Ain't Going Nowhere, which ironically enough, the lyrics that I just quoted are not the version on that song. Um, That song is one of my all-time top five Bob Dylan performances, songs, however you want to count it, of all time. And I remember when I was becoming a fan of Bob and I went out and was buying all the records and I bought Greatest Hits Volume 2 and I saw, oh, there's other songs in here that are new and some other, oh, he's re-recorded some stuff. And I get to those last songs that don't sound like anything else on the record, didn't sound like anything he had done to that point. And I thought, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. Why is this not a whole album? Like, this is so good. What? And I have always been fascinated by this session of how it came about and, and all of the stuff behind it. So then flash forward, you know, of course, in the intervening years, I learned who you are and I learned that you of your stature in, in the world of music and your connection to Bob. And then, of course, your participation in this session. I learned about all that. Then we flash forward to 2023 and we're in Tulsa, Oklahoma for the World of Bob Dylan Conference. And I see that you have a panel and I am like, I am not missing this for the world. And so I, and it's the last panel that mm-hmm. I went to and I got to see you on stage, talk about this session, talk about your life and music, some amazing photos and talk about this session in depth. And it was for a Bob Dylan fan like me, manna from heaven, because it was just everything I've always wanted to know about this session. And it quite literally brought me to tears. I was so taken aback by the stories you told and your your warm heartedness about your days in, in you know in in the folk scene and just everything about it and I was lucky enough to get to speak to you at the end of it and shake your hand and meet your your wonderful wife and I thought to myself I wonder if I could possibly get happy on the show and never thinking that would ever happen so but you're here now and like I said I am just so excited so that's the context everybody is this legendary session that you sat in on so let's i mean you know you again you told the story at the at the panel but for those people that weren't lucky enough to hear it i mean if you don't mind we just start how did you get involved in this well i had moved to woodstock new york in 1967 full-time i'd been visiting there for many years before that and bob had already been living there and as it turned out, when we came up uh, in the summer, I guess it was of 77, I got a call from Bob who had heard that we had moved to town. 
because I had known him. I'll just step back a little bit. I'd known him in the earliest days of his New York uh, times when uh, he had moved to New York. I'd knew, known him in 62, 63, you know, 64, until pretty much he took off with uh, Like a Rolling Stone and all his other major hits. And then we lost touch for a few years, two, three years. And when he heard that uh, my family and I had moved to Woodstock, and it was shortly after his motorcycle accident, we became friends. And uh, he wasn't seeing very many people in those days, so we were privileged to be in and out of his house. Our kids knew his kids. Uh, it was very family-oriented kind of thing. It wasn't at all a rock and roll star and a, and a folky, you know, that kind of thing. It was just people who knew each other and we were friends. And But we did end up occasionally sitting in each other's living rooms and playing songs together because he used to like to do that. Maybe he still does. I don't know. Um, I haven't seen him in quite a long time. Um, but in those days, we did spend a lot of time just sort of jamming and hanging out and, and just enjoying each other's company. And uh, in around 19, yeah, early in 1971, he very cryptically told me that I should learn how to play bass. <laughs> you know, now I never played bass before. <laughs> It was it was very odd for him to say that, but it was Bob Dylan. So I borrowed a bass from a friend. I borrowed an amp. You know, I'm an acoustic guy. I play acoustic guitar. But I, you know, I I messed around with it. I started learning it. Good bass isn't. I mean, it's hard to be a really good bass player. It's really hard. But to be a mediocre bass player isn't that hard because it, the the four strings are like the bottom four strings on a guitar. So the notes are the same, except an octave lower. So I messed around. I played along with some records and, you know, tried to find my way around the, the bass a little bit. And then I forgot about it. I kept the bass around. My friend who I borrowed it from didn't need it back, so I just had it around the house. And one day I got a call from Bob, and he said, I'm doing a session in New York with Allen Ginsberg. So bring your bass and bring a guitar and come down to the session. And it turned out to be a session that was pretty historic, actually, although I don't think a lot of people know about it, but it was at the Record Plant, which was a famous, uh, very famous uh, recording studio in New York. And it was my first meeting with Allen Ginsberg. And also on the session were David Amram, who's still to this day a, a, a dear friend of mine. Um, Ed Sanders from the Fugs was there. Uh, the late John Scholl, who uh, a lot of people might not know, but he was very big in the bluegrass scene and a very wonderful guitar player, musician. Um, and quite a few other people, uh, some beat poets, Gregory Corso showed up, and um, Alan and his partner, um, Peter Olofsky, was there, and everything. Uh, so it was, but it was a big thing in my life to be on that session. Uh, and um, I was very delighted that Bob had the confidence in me to bring me in on it with all these other great musicians. And also it started a lifelong relationship between Allen Ginsberg and my wife and I. Uh, we were friends. I went on the road with him on several occasions. We 
Uh, he used to stay with us whenever he came to Woodstock to go to the Zen Mountain Monastery, where he liked to do his his uh, Zen Buddhist stuff. He dedicated a lot of books to me, and I mean, it was just a a very warm and nice relationship until he passed away in the I think it was ninety six. So that that was kind of the the um, genesis, I would say, of of the sessions with Bob. Um, it was, as I say, it was a kind of a chaotic day. There were strangely the the other thing that I think is strange about that day is that one of the leading photographers of the New York beat scene, Fred McDara, came into the studio with his cameras, and as far as I know, he only took no more than half a dozen frames, and he left. I bought three of those frames from him for, you know, hand, hand printed frames signed by him with me and Bob and Allen Ginsberg and Peter and all the other people that were at the session. But I was amazed that he didn't shoot rolls and rolls of film. I mean, that to me, I, I don't know. He was such a celebrated photographer. There are books of his, his photography out there. But anyway, that's beside the point. So then sometime after Bob called me again and he said, I'm doing another session in New York. Would you bring your banjo? He specified banjo and guitar <laughs> and bass and amp down to CBS studios in New York. And he said, I'm, he said, I'm doing some songs that other people made hits of that I've never recorded. And I want to make those, I want to record those songs. I didn't realize at the time it was just going to be the two of us. Mm-hmm. There was an engineer, no producer, just Bob, me, and the, and the engineer. So I took the bus down with all my gear. Which <laughs> I had very little money. At the time, I was just starting up my duo career with my brother, Artie, who was, um, uh, he passed away 15 years ago. But um, we were, we had been playing together for two or three years. We had made a couple of albums for Capital, which Bob helped us secure. Bob and, and our manager, Albert Grossman, who was also Bob's manager, helped us secure the contract with Capital. So we were on a major label for the first and only time in my life. But uh, this was kind of strange to me. So. Anyway, I, I said, sure, you know, and I got on the bus with all my gear and went down there. And um, I believe it was a nighttime session. Even I, I don't even, I don't remember. It seems to me it was dark, but could have been my just my memory. And it ended up um, no rehearsals. We just went in and it was like we were sitting around the living room. And that's, I think, the, the feeling you got and why you think it was different than other recordings of Bob's that you've heard, and you've probably heard them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I'm, not, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. I love Bob's music, but I'm not compulsive about listening to every take of every ever. <laughs> I have tapes that people have sent me from, you know, some show in uh, Boulder, Colorado in 1981. So, you know, those kinds of things. Never listen to them. <laughs> but, okay. But still, I'm... I'm you could call me a Bob Dylan fan. I I love his music, especially the early stuff. So 
it was literally like we were just sitting around jamming on the, you know, and I think that's the feeling that came across and that's the feeling that you get. And that's the feeling when I listen to those sessions, which I do occasionally because I, I love them myself. And many people, by the way, including some fairly celebrated people, and I don't know if I should say this, but Bob's son, Jacob Dylan, told me that You Ain't Going Nowhere is one of his favorite tracks of Bob's. Oh, hey, <laughs> I'm a good company. Cool. There you go. <laughs> um, and other people who are quite well-known told me that as well. So we got into the studio and I unpacked my gear and Bob said, hey, let's do Only a Hobo. Well, Only a Hobo was not a hit by anybody. But he had recorded that song on the first studio album that I was ever on in my life. And that was a benefit for Broadsides magazine, which took which we did in 1963. I believe it was January 63 at Folkways Records studio. And in the studio, and you can picture this one large room with a control room and a little hallway outside. It was where a lot of very famous folk songs were produced by Moash and other well-known folk music uh, aficionados. I mean, people who really knew anything about folk music would know Folkways. It was the major label for folk music, blues, country music, spoken word, uh, international stuff. It was just a, an iconic company. So we went in and in this little studio were Pete Seeger, who would be my main inspiration and hero all my life, Bob Dylan, who was there recording under the name Blind Boy Grunt because he was already contracted to Columbia. We so couldn't use his real name. Phil Oaks, who I met there for the first time. Mark Spolstra, who was a wonderful singer and 12-string guitar player. The Freedom Singers from Albany, Georgia, who were fabulous uh, Southern gospel and civil rights singers. Um, Peter Lafarge, who represented American Indian music, Native American music. Um, it, was, it was just a... Um, an amazing session. And one of the songs that Bob played on that was Only a Hobo. So him saying, let's do Only a Hobo was obviously a throwback 10 years or so earlier, maybe not quite 10 years, to that session, I assume. I assume he associated me with that song. So we did, I believe we did two takes of that song. I played banjo and sang harmony, and Bob played guitar and sang the main part, of course. And then Bob said, let's move on. And I just thought, okay, he hated it. It was no good. I don't know what I did. It was, you know, there was no playback. It wasn't like, let's listen and see how we like it. Let's fix this. Let's do this. It was nothing. It was just like, okay, next. And so, Literally, and this is a little diversion, but you have a lot of time, right? I'm going to have I'm, I'm all, we have all the time in the world. All right. So 40 years later was the next time I heard Only a Hobo that I played and sang with Bob. And if the story, the, um, 
I'm going to divert again a little bit. <laughs> if that's okay. I mean, yes, I mean, of course. Of okay. course. I was having dinner in New York City at an Italian restaurant, my wife Jane and I, with a dear friend named Eric Anderson. You know Eric Anderson? Yes. Okay. Eric's been a friend since the 60s. And we were having dinner with him. And he was working on an album and his engineer and producer named Steve Adabo, a wonderful guitar player and audio engineer, came in to join us at this Italian restaurant in Midtown Manhattan. And he looked at me and he said, I've just been mixing a song that you're on. I said, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not on any song. I don't know what you mean. He said, well, I've been hired by Dylan's office to make a new one of his bootleg mm -hmm. leg albums. And this one was called Another Self-Portrait. And he said, I've just been mixing Only a Hobo from your 1971 session. And this was in 2000 and something. Now, it was literally 40 years later. And my jaw almost fell to the floor. You know? <laughs> How does this something like this happen? And I had never, literally never heard it. So he sent me a mix of it, and I listened to it on my computer. And I said, holy mackerel, this is actually pretty damn good. Fantastic. <laughs> I was singing. I couldn't possibly sing that high anymore. I was singing a really high harmony part. My banjo was, was pretty passable. My banjo playing. And obviously, all those years later, Bob did not think it was terrible. Because even though he never said a word to me afterwards about it, it appeared on that record, mm -hmm. which turned out to be actually a very good record. There were some fabulous songs on it that were outtakes or yes, things, yep. never been, things that had never been um, recorded before. So that was a that was just a huge surprise for me, but that this is all diverted back. So then we went on to the next song, and so I, let me just have you one second. When he says, "Let's move on," right? Yeah. How does that? How does he say it? Is it is it "Let's move on" or is it "Let's move on"? Like, do you, are you getting any vibe of no? How much? Okay, he's that much of a kind of stone faced. Like he's yeah. just the, the okay. Vibe I, the vibe I got was that <laughs> he probably didn't like it. Okay. All the right. vibe I got. All right. And that was the vibe that sat with me for the next 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, I can't remember specifically what the next song we did was. Whether And we did three more songs, as you know. Yeah. And those are the songs that, that did appear yep. on his greatest hits. So of those songs, of course, I knew I shall be released very well because I knew the band. And another diversion was that one of the um, one of the great memorable experiences of my life was going into Robbie Robertson's living room with Garth Hudson and listening to their mix of music from Big Pink before it was released. And of course, "I Shall Be Released" is an out one of the outstanding tracks on that record. And I'd heard the Basement Tapes also where that song originated so i did know i shall be released i i did not know the 
Who was it that the hit of it? Was it the birds? I probably. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember. But anyway, but I did know the song. So that wasn't that hard, and I could sing a harmony to it and play a guitar part. And that one was not that hard, and it came out reasonably well. I think it was that was a nice, um, and I, I love the song. I and um, I could go on to versions about that song too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that to me is a song for the ages. I mean, it just it just doesn't get old. We did that in probably a couple of takes also. Nice. And as I said earlier, there were no rehearsals. We, he just said, he said he would just start strumming. And I'd get my guitar and I'd look at what key he was in. And I'd start trying to make a part for it. You know, so it was really off the cuff. It was literally a, a kind of a, you know, it, it, was, it was just a let's jam kind of thing. And it's really, you know, I, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I think it was, it's something I'm proud of that it came out to be something that he actually felt good enough to put out on, on a record. And Down in the Flood, the next song we did, I believe, right. I did not know. I probably had heard it on the basement tapes also, but I, that one at the time, I think I dismissed, I, I you know, and certainly the version we did on that um when i listen to it i hear myself even on the final recording which was on the record feeling around for a good part <laughs> and i didn't sing on that one at all i was just playing with them and again it was just like let's see what i can add to it you know and and again I don't remember Bob saying anything afterwards. And then we did, I think the final thing we did was I shall be released. Mm -hmm. And with that one, um, again, it wasn't a song I was that familiar with at the time. Now it's many years later, so I'm not sure I remember that clearly more than a half century, but he did, um, uh, he, he started the song. We played, probably played it a couple of times. And then I, I got my banjo out and found a part for it, for the banjo. And that one's an easy one to sing harmony with. So I just chimed in on the harmony part. And then as we were listening to it, now Bob does generally not like, I know from what I've heard from other people, he doesn't like to overdub stuff. Right, yeah. But I did have my bass with me, <laughs> my borrowed bass. And I don't remember whether he suggested or I suggested, let's put a bass part on it would really be a good idea. So um, I overdubbed the bass part. And when I listened to it, again, I think that's not half bad. For, 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 <laughs> for, the non, least. for a non-bass player. You know, I kept the, I kept the beat. <laughs> you know, I kept the rhythm. I was in time. Um, I do hear one note that I probably would have played differently. I, I think it was a mistake, but it, it fit, so we left it in. And um, that song, for some reason, had a spirit to it, which you respond to, and a lot of other people have responded to, and I respond to every time I listen to it. It just had, for some reason, it had a looseness, but it had a joyfulness 
and a friend. I, I feel like I was playing with a friend at that point. Mm -hmm. And um, that was, as I remember, the last thing we did. I have no recollection of Bob saying, hey, great job, you know, or that was great. That was fabulous. And I had no idea for many weeks or months whether any of that stuff was going to be see the light of day. Uh, nobody contacted me. Nobody said, hey, you're going to be on a record, you know, or anything like that until it was ready to come out. And then I got a I might have gotten a, something I had to sign a release or something. I don't remember. But, um, of course, when it did come out on an LP, it was a gatefold mm -hmm. double LP, right? Yep. And there was my name on the back cover. I couldn't have been more thrilled. <laughs> I mean, it, it was truly a, a thrilling time for me. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much the whole story of that, that record. So he doesn't even tell you, like, he doesn't say this is for a greatest hits thing I'm doing. He literally just says... I'm re-recording some songs that other people have had hits with, and that's it. That's the entire context you have for this session. Well, I don't remember whether he told me that it was going to be a greatest hits thing. I, he might have, but I don't think I knew. I certainly didn't know who else was going to be on the record. I didn't mm -hmm. know what, you know, that this was going to be really the only acoustic thing on the record. Mm -hmm. As far as I remember, I haven't listened to the record in a long time. Yeah. But, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, there are two other original songs to to the record on there, which are Watching the River Flow and When I Paint My Masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And those are produced by Leon Russell. So right. he's, you know, he's obviously for the thing he's doing with you, he's got something very specific in mind and he wants mm -hmm. it to be different than the stuff he's doing with Leon Russell. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for people like me and people who listen to the show that, that as you talk about, like, you know, that you don't do follow him on a granular level about, you know, every little move that he's making, the stuff that we get frustrated with is when he seems to stumble into a really rich vein. And then he sometimes discards it very quickly. Right. And we know that he is very focused on not repeating himself or whatever, but, when you when I heard these four songs, when I got the Greatest Hits collection, like I said earlier, I kept saying, why is this not a whole record? Why is there right. not 10 of these? Because each version of, as you mentioned, I didn't hear only a hobo until the self-portrait box set. Because, mm -hmm. I, in fact, you know, I didn't even know that there was a fourth song until I read it in a book in the 90s. And I said, oh, geez, there's a song out there that I've never even heard. But each version... Uh, the the versions on this record are my favorite versions of those songs. Mm. They to me are, and as you say, there is a joy to it. And, and so, okay, before I forget this, when you're talking about, um, you know, you're getting to down in the flood slash crash on the levee. You said you don't know that song, so that's is that why you're not singing along on it? You just don't know the words, and the other ones you do know the words, and so therefore you you already know in your head there's a place for me to come in here. Right. Well, you know. The other thing is that song is not the way Bob did it right. was not that conducive to a harmony part. Right. He was very, um, I mean, in subsequent versions of the song that he's recorded, there were harmony. You could do harmony parts to it. And, but he was very, um, his vocal was very freewheeling. Oh, I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to uh, <laughs> well done. Album cover, but, uh, it was, it was very, um, 
sort of open-ended. It wasn't the kind of thing you could just lock in on. If you listen to him singing it, it was like he was just improvising stuff. So it it, it just wasn't conducive to me singing anything that would have been meaningful on it. Gotcha. I did record the song myself a few years ago, and I'm very, but it was a totally different version of it. But I'm very proud of the the version I did of it. I don't know if you've heard it, but I could. No, I haven't heard that one. I could send you the. I could send it to you. It's on a second to most recent CD I did. Oh wow! Okay, I did yeah. One song on almost every everything I've done. <laughs> you know. So for this set, like he does, like I said, he doesn't give, I mean, I've never spoken to anyone who's ever recorded with him for an album session like this. So, I mean, I, we're always, again, the, the nerds like me are fascinated at the process of it, of how he, you know, comes to this stuff. And so, you know, he obviously has this idea in his head of you're the right guy for this and you're going to bring the right energy for it. I mean, he, again, he doesn't give you lyrics. He doesn't, does he even tell you, he just says that he just says, Oh, only a hobo and you break into it. And then it's, you ain't going nowhere. And we break into it. That's the level of prep that you're getting. As I remember, as I say, it's more than a half century ago. So mm. he might have, he might have strummed a little bit and sang a verse or two. I, you know, I don't remember, uh, you know, so that we could lock in on some, some part. How long did all this take? I mean, how long does it take? You do. I mean, again, according to, the paperwork that exists. You did four takes of only a hobo. You did four takes of you ain't going nowhere. And then like two of the other ones. So, I mean, how long does that take? Is that a whole afternoon? Is that that's what, more, what? That's more than I knew. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that, you know, as a, you know, I'm, I'm not the, I'm not a Dylan nerd as much. Right. So, <laughs> so I didn't realize Got a life, how, happy. <laughs> how many, takes, I don't know how many takes I did of those songs. So you said we did four takes of only a hobo. According to books that I have read about this session, that okay. that that is, I mean, hopefully those books are accurate, but no, that's I'm, what it I'm says. I'm sure there are, you know, um, I'm sure there are records of all these things. There are mm-hmm. you know, track sheets and all that right, stuff. Right, right. But um, I don't think the whole thing took more than, I'm thinking three or four hours. There were, because even those takes, each, what's a take, you know, like, Three minutes, four minutes. Yeah, they're short songs on top of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and if we're doing one after another, and it wasn't like we took breaks and had a meal, or there was none of that. There was no food brought in. There was no, right. like, let's go out to dinner. <laughs> and remember, Bob, even at those, in 1971, was one of the biggest stars in the world. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't exactly going out in public, and he didn't cater a meal, and, and it was only the two of us. My recollection is that it was not a long time, you know. And when and when you're done, what does he just says? Thanks, shakes your hand, and and then that's you know, okay, we're done. We're that kind of thing. As I remember, <laughs> again, if I if I knew that 50 years later I'd be interviewed by you about this, right. I might have I might have taken some notes. And, yeah. You know, no. <laughs> not expecting some some nerd to be bothering you about this 50 years oh, later. Yeah. I mean, like I said it's. It, uh, you know, the, the, the thing about you ain't going, I mean, it's said, I love the whole session and it, it is just, to me, it's one of the great unrealized ideas that, um, and as we know from again, reading uh, about his recording sessions that sometimes he has a really difficult time wrestling the songs to be what he wants them to, what he hears in his head. Mm-hmm. And, but it, and so when he has moments like this, where it seems like he gets it, 
and it's like a lightning strike and you get it exactly what you want in just a couple of hours. You say, boy, I, I can't imagine how tempting, how you can resist the temptation to not say, all right, l- like call you back the next day, you know, right. and say, hey, come back tomorrow. We're going to do eight more of these because this really worked. Right. It's it's just sort of fat. And that's the kind of stuff that if I ever got to talk to him, if I could compose myself, which is unlikely, mm-hmm. that's the stuff I would ask about is like that that creative process, because as you say, there is a joy in these performances that is so lively. And even though some of the songs, he's, you know, I shall be released and down on the flood are not, and only a hobo are not like upbeat songs, right. particularly right. you ain't going nowhere is the one that's kind of different. But even though when he's singing something serious, he still, there's this just wonderful joy to it that I, I just say to myself, God, I, I, why didn't he bring Happy Trump back on every record at this point? They seem to really get along. I wish he had. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I just found out that there's a new, um, I, I don't think this is a secret. I don't know. Probably not. Oh, okay. Um, another thing called the banjo tapes. I'm sure mm-hmm. you know about that. So evidently one of the tracks from that home recording, which is what it was, is going to be on a new compilation that's coming out at some point later this year or next year. Okay. So one of the songs that I played on that with Bob. So I'm going to have another something else that I was on. Mm. Uh, so the, the version of You Ain't Going Nowhere, uh, which is almost completely rewritten from the version from the basement right. tapes, uh, which is funny that you were able to, I mean, he keeps the chorus. So you were able to sing along in the chorus. Sure. But uh, and and so and those lyrics are not available on BobDylan.com. Like I said, I, I quoted the the other version that's on the website. The version that's on Greatest Hits it opens with the clouds so swift, the rain's pouring in. We're going to see a movie called Gunga Din. Pack up your money, pull up your tent, McGuinn. <laughs> you right. ain't going nowhere. And then right. the chorus, Ooh wee, ride me high. Tomorrow's the day my bride's going to come. Oh oh, are we going to fly down in the easy chair? And then the, he goes into Well, Genghis Khan. And his brother, Don, they could not keep on keeping on. We'll cross that bridge after it's gone. After we way past it, ooh, we ride me high. And then he mm-hmm. gets into another lyric about a fish that walks and a dog that talks. And part of the th- reason I love this thing so much is, uh, and I'm sure you're, you've heard this over the years, is the people that, there are people who uh, like Bob, but they do a backhanded compliment where they go, oh, well, he's a great songwriter. I don't like the voice, but he's a great songwriter. And, and diehard fans like me are always they're kind of like gnashing their teeth a little because it's mm-hmm. and this song this take of you ain't going nowhere is the song i play for people who tell me they like him but they don't like you yeah, always a great songwriter but i don't know if i really like the voice or, or it seems so you know whatever this is the one i play because i say the lyrics are nonsense they're just nonsense lyrics. Genghis Khan and his brother Don, a fish that walks and a dog that talks. It's you know he pull up your tent, McGuinn. I mean he's 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 hitting a you know he's sending a, a doing a drive by on Roger McGuinn in this song. So it's yeah. all just gibberish, but it's the feel of it is so powerful to me. Especially mm-hmm. again when he's singing about tomorrow's the day that my bride's going to come. I say anyone that listens to this and is not stirred by the joy in his voice. It, to me, I'm like, then it's hopeless. If you don't hear this, it, you're not getting him, and that's f- and that's fine. We'll just move on. But anyone who ever says to me, "What kind of what should I listen to?" If you really want me to get into the voice, I go this song because it is so 
beautiful. And when I was at the Bob Dylan Center for for the for the event last summer, mm-hmm. and they have that wall where you can grab a marker and scribble whatever you want. I scribbled, uh, ooh, we ride me high. Tomorrow's the day my bride's going to come. Or how are we going to fly down in the easy chair? Because it is some of my favorite lines he's ever written. Mm. And it's performed so beautifully. And so, like I said at the intro, when I saw that you were having a panel, mm-hmm. I was just gobsmacked that I was going to get to hear someone who was there talk about this. And your panel was absolutely masterful. Everyone loved it. I mean, you got, I think you got like a standing, a standing ovation at the end of it. Um, (laughs) Can we just talk briefly a little bit about how you got involved with that, how you got involved into giving that panel at the, at the event? Well, I've, for the last uh, maybe six, seven, eight years, I don't remember exactly how long I've been developing something like what I did there, a slideshow and talk with, Usually I start with uh, a half hour or so of songs and, you know, music. I think I did there too. I played a bunch of songs at the beginning. Um, and it's mostly, it's it's called Coming of Age in the Folk Revival. And it's Greenwich Village and Woodstock from 1954, which is when I first started playing guitar and discovering folk music and Pete Seeger and uh, Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly and Josh White and all those people. Um, the kind of heart and soul of the folk revival until pretty much the 1971 sessions with Dylan. Um, so when the folks at the Dylan Center asked me to do this show for them, and of course I can change it anytime because it's my show. So, yep. um, so I made it just, I just changed it enough to make it more Dylan centric. Mm-hmm. Um, talking a little bit more about meeting him in the city in 62. Um, some of those um, interactions, the the broadsides session, the fact that he asked me to sing a, a solo of a new song he had written called uh, Let Me Die in My Footsteps, mm-hmm. which was the first time that song was ever recorded. And uh, he was the one that asked me to to sing it and he played guitar and backed me up and sang harmony on it with me. So, you know, I, I emphasize that a little bit in this show. So it's a show I had been doing in many places, including in London and California and Arizona. I've done it all over the country. Um, so it, it was kind of a natural for me to do it at the Dylan center and just change it around enough to add more stuff about Bob. Gotcha. Part of the uh, most amazing thing about your show, uh, and 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 the, my fellow Bobcats uh, who listen to the show, who are on Bob Dylan Twitter, who were there with me, will will agree because we were all kib- uh, kibitzing after we saw your show, uh, and uh, we saw you walk by the walk by the bar, by the way, and my friend said. Go, go, go talk to Happy. Go, go say hi to him. And I didn't want to bother you. So I let you walk by. Uh, <laughs> it's like he's got stuff to do. Um, was that you would tell some story about your, you know, your, your past. And then you have a photo, you know, on your slideshow, like an amazing photo right from that moment. Now, obviously, I know your reverse engineering is that you have yeah. the photos and then yeah. you're telling the story to lead up to it. But it was like, where did you get all, like, are those photos that you have or is it you're doing 
searches for these? Because you seem to manage to have photos at moments that you're like, how did somebody happen to have a camera at that exact moment where they, you know, they're talking about the, the right. folk singers being arrested with the one guy with his accordion or whatever it was yeah. like, Oh, this dangerous harp, accordion yeah. that he had. Yeah. No, most, most of those did come from online. They came okay. from searches. Uh, some of them I do have some of them, some of them I own, um, especially the really early ones. Um, of me kind of like starting out in Washington Square and that kind of thing. But a lot of them came from uh, from collections also that uh, that I accessed. So, um, you know, I can't take credit for for a lot of those photos. The the one of the the only photo I have of me involved, you know, the one of the big regrets that I've had through my life is that with all the time I spent with Bob, especially from 1960 or 66, the 67, until the Rolling Thunder, 74, something like that, when I spent a lot of quality time with Bob, I never took any pictures. <laughs> I never asked anybody else to take any pictures. Because I was always super conscious of not intruding, of not being a, you know, a dork and, and saying, let's get a picture together even though other people did take pictures with him. And I kick myself now that I wasn't brave enough or or uh, didn't have enough chutzpah to, <laughs> um, to say, hey, Bob, we're sitting here together with George Harrison playing songs. <laughs> let's, you know, let's get a picture together. Now everybody does it because everybody's got their phone. Everybody, mm -hmm. you know, nothing that doesn't get recorded or yep yeah yep. <laughs> so those years went by and as far as i know there are no pictures of me and bob except the ones that fred mcdara took in that studio session with allen ginsburg wow so, so that's a big hole in my um my autobiography really <laughs> I, I mean you know to you it wasn't that you know like this is you know the guy this is something you're doing you know for the rest yeah. of us it would be it's, you know, oh my god like what are you talking about so i mean also part of the part of the the thing of your presentation was your powers of recollection mm -hmm. were events 60 years ago that that of course to to us in in you know in the in the future look at as oh these were historic moments in mm -hmm. this scene well you're just living your life you're not sitting there going wow this is an historic moment we're happening you know right. like you're just living your life you're right, you're about to take a picture of me and abraham lincoln right. <laughs> but i mean your ability to recall very specific details mm -hmm. from some of these moments where you were interacting with people was just incredibly powerful and like i said mm -hmm. it, it was for me my favorite thing my favorite panel that i saw uh, and I, you know, I had my own panel and I still liked yours better, you know, <laughs> and, it was just, and, and it was so um, I want to thank you just for that. I mean, again, I got to thank you on stage, but there was a million people and I, you know, again, everyone was saying right. something to you. I didn't want to waste your time, um, but it was just an amazing performance. And uh, I never, you know, after meeting you and I did, I talked to your wife and I, I gave her uh, my information and, mm -hmm. I just thought, well, I maybe I'll be able to talk to him about this session sometime. Never thinking I was going to get a chance to do it because, like I said, this 
of when I was falling in love with the work in mm-hmm. in the in the late eighties. That's when I kind of got into Bob, and I was buying all the albums. This this session, that song, just lodged itself in my brain as like this is one of the greatest things I've ever heard, and it has stayed there thirty years hence. It mm-hmm. still is one wow. of my all time favorite things that I've ever heard of that, that he has ever done. And again, it's not just that it's the song because the version on the basement tapes, I'm kind of like meh on mm-hmm. it's this one that mm-hmm. you did with him is, is that's the stuff. And again, I really wish we could go back in time and conjure up a whole album of you and Bob doing these songs. Cause I mean, I just would have been like, yeah, give me, give me 20 more of these. Cause you, <laughs> you, you two, you clearly had such an amazing musical rapport. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, good. So, well, thanks. It's nice. It's nice to talk to you about it. And it's nice to talk about it with somebody who's who's so uh, enthusiastic about it. And I, that really makes me feel good. So yeah, I mean, you don't want to pat yourself on the back. I'll do it. I'll absolutely do it. <laughs> um, so well, again, happy. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm just deeply honored that I get a chance to talk to you. Uh, I do have one more question for you before we we sign off. And what I do every time I have a guest is we have an exit question, which is just a more fanciful question that I throw at my my guests just to kind of, you know, end the show on a, on a, on a weird up note. And I have one specific for you. And you mentioned that you're not, uh, you know, following Bob on the, on the granular level, like the rest of us nerds are. So maybe this, this question won't have as much resonance for you, but I, I'm, I, I, I can't help but ask it, which would be knowing what you know of his, of his work, of his records and all the stuff. Is there a session for one of his records that you wished you could have sat in on just, you would have liked to just play on it. Or, I mean, is there like, is it freewheeling or desire or blood mm-hmm. on the track? Is there some, is there one record that you feel like, man, I wish I could have been there to add a part to that? That's a good question. I have to think a minute about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I do have a few favorite Dylan sessions. Um, and as I said earlier, it was his, more of his earlier works and that I like uh, best. Mm-hmm. Probably. A couple of the songs on maybe on um, Blood on the Tracks, mm-hmm. which I think is just a superb record from beginning yeah. to end, um, one song after another. And I also I mentioned that I've done one of Bob's songs on almost every record I've ever mm-hmm. made. My favorite song of Bob's that I play, which I've been playing since the seventies, is Buckets of Rain. Mm-hmm. So I think if I could have played that with him, um, I'm I I get that's the one song of Bob's that people ask me for the most when I'm playing out. People say, "Hey, could you do Buckets of Rain for us?" And it's very different than Bob's version. It's it's very uh, bluesy. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know if you've ever heard me do it, but I have. Um, I do a lot of guitar work, a lot of bluesy kind of. You know, I made it into a real blues song. Mm-hmm. I think that song I would love to have played with Bob and put added my particular guitar thinking onto it. You know, okay. that that would have been nice. All right. Well, excellent. Well, again, uh, happy. Thank you. Once again, this has just been the absolute honor of a lifetime to, to get to do this. And so uh, thank you so much. Why don't you tell people, can they find you out on the internet somewhere if they absolutely, want to follow what you're absolutely. doing? Absolutely. Uh, it's it's very it's not very cryptic. It's happytraum dot com, <laughs> and also I have a uh, we have a company called homespun dot com, right? Where um, 
we have over 700 some odd lessons um, of how to play guitar, banjo, mandolin, fiddle, drums. We have people that Dylan fans would know, Rick Danko, uh, Levon Helm teaching drums. We have Dr. Wow. John, Dr. John teaching piano. We have um, uh, me teaching a, a two DVDs worth of um, Dylan songs, arrangements that I've made of his songs. Um, Donald Fagan teaching piano. Um, wow. and a, lot of, a lot of folk, you know, Tony Rice and uh, Sam Bush and, uh, you know, Pete Seeger and and that's homespun.com. So it's it's a very comprehensive uh, website. But for me personally, happytram.com will tell you about my bio and, you know, what I'm up to and all that stuff. Awesome. All right. Well, you heard him, everybody. Go check that out. So uh, as always, I uh, said, you can find the show on Twitter and Blue Sky uh, as Pod Dylan. And if you want to support the show and get access to the first 100 episodes, go to fmpods.com. So uh, that is going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Buy me some rings and a gun that sings. A flute that toots and a bee that stings. A sky that cries and a bird that flies. A fish that walks and a dog that talks. Ooh-wee, ride me high. Tomorrow's the day that my brides are going to come. Ooh-wee, we're going to fly.